You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda, and I'm delighted today to be joined by Abhigyan Reg, The Diplomats Security and Defense Editor, who's joining me from New Delhi. Abhi, how are you today? I'm great. Thank you, Ankit. It's uh, terrific to be back, and uh, as listeners will expect, uh, we are still continuing our post-U.S. elections coverage. Uh, and yes, mm. I mean, still uh, more than three weeks after the elections, we still don't have a concession from outgoing <laughs> President Donald Trump, uh, but uh, Joe Biden is president-elect of the United States still. And uh, today we'll be talking a little bit about the implications um, of the incoming Biden administration for uh, U.S. policy in South Asia. Uh, so we'll talk mostly about the U.S. relationship with India, uh, mostly due to scoping reasons, not not out of any particular editorial decision, um, given that India is the largest country in the region and tends to be the most important relationship for the United States. Uh, but I do also want to talk a little bit about um, the broader U.S. presence in the Indian Ocean region, um, U.S. attempts to balance China uh, around South Asia with countries like Nepal, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, the Maldives, which has also recently received attention um, from the Trump administration. Also talk a little bit about Pakistan if we have time. Uh, so it's a packed agenda. It's a, it's a busy region. So um, Abhi, just to cut to the chase a little bit, uh, let's start by talking about India. Um, so you're based in New Delhi. What's the What, what have you been seeing around town uh, in terms of uh, the reaction to uh, Joe Biden's victory? Uh, obviously, just a little over a year ago, we saw President Trump and um, Prime Minister Modi, uh, you know, celebrated here in the United States with the um, um, with the uh, Howdy Modi event uh, in which uh, sure. the Indian prime minister memorably um, repeated Donald Trump's campaign slogan in a way that was uh, interpreted by many folks as an effective endorsement of so which uh, oh, oh, which was a little puzzling given the uh, you know generally uh, you have seen Indian prime ministers stay out of American domestic politics but uh, what have you seen around town what's the reaction been to the incoming Biden administration I think, Ankit, what is going on here is that you have a two-tiered reaction. So you have, as usual, reaction from government of India, the BJP-led uh, Narendra Modi government. But you also have simultaneously reaction from uh, BJP voices, who necessarily may not be directly part of the Bharatiya Janata Party, but are widely seen in this town, and I suspect also abroad, as being very sympathetic or very close to Mr. Modi. So to unpack these two, uh, obviously when it comes to the establishment and the establishment's voices, it's very simple. They're saying, we have worked with Barack Obama, we know Joe Biden, uh, there are structural reasons, and all of these simultaneously means that no matter who's in Washington, it is not going to matter for U.S.-India ties. Now, this is conventional wisdom. You and I both have read a lot of op-eds around it on uh, making this argument. Now, let's go back to that. the other side. Uh, as I said, it's a two-track, in many ways, two-track signaling, two-track two um, uh, voicing of concerns or, 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 or whatever you want to call it. So when you look at these BGP voices, um, who are, or, or voices close to the Bharatiya Janata Party, rather, you see... A, almost a, 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 I don't call it fear, but I would say apprehension, certainly. And I'll tell you why I'm thinking that, that this is the case. If you look at the first few days after November 3rd, or even in the run-up to November 3rd, or November 3rd itself, you had very prominent uh, BJP-linked voices on social media watching support for Trump. In fact, repeating some of Trump's what patently false claims around 
uh, voter fraud, around some kind of uh, nebulous conspiracy that that that, uh, that 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 Trump has been going around town suggesting. Uh, so you see that, uh, that 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 signaling from some very prominent people saying, "Oh, you know, this is this is Trump was a disruptor." And now, you know, all the establishment guys are back, all these Ivy League types, East Coast types, you know, whatever, what, New Yorkers, so, 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 so they're all back, right? So that suggests to me a degree of dissonance between the official line, which is that all is well, and the quasi-official line, which says perhaps not, not everything is going to be hockey-dory come January 20th. Yeah. I mean, no, that's, uh, you know, let's let's dig into that a little more. Uh, I mean, you know, I think the place to begin is, I mean, first of all, um, even under Trump, U.S.-India ties had their fair share of bumps in the road, right? And this has been the story. I mean, as you as you repeated the conventional wisdom, um, everybody uh, writing an op-ed on U.S.-India relations points out that the trajectory in this relationship for the last 20 years uh, has been, you know, a positive coefficient. Uh, the relationship is heading upwards and continues to advance, given that strong strategic logic. Um, some people point to the you know, shared values between the two countries, um, values that I think um, are going to be a little bit more of a sticking point under Biden. Um, but under Trump, you had your fair share of, uh, you know, bumps in the road, including um, trade policy, uh, uh, the removal of India from uh, the GSP status. Um, you had uh, bumps in the road over uh, U.S.-Afghanistan policy, U.S.-Iran policy, um, even even U.S.-Pakistan policy early on, at least, uh, and, that, and that sort US of U.S.-Russia policy. Yeah, and U.S.-Russia policy, US yeah, Katza uh, and sanctions. Um, so yeah. bumps in the road have always been there. Um, but now, as you, as you pointed out, uh, you know, one of uh, India perhaps was one of the few countries in the region, I mean, not a formal ally, but a U.S. partner, uh, that benefited from the Trump administration's sort of... Um, amoral transactionalism in foreign policy, right? In, in some ways that uh, because of the Trump administration's interest in balancing China and pursuing a free and open Indo-Pacific, uh, there was uh, that logic that has brought the US and, the, and India together uh, over years, I think manifested in ways that I think New Delhi didn't quite mind under, under Trump. Sure. And under Biden, while I think much of that logic will uh, remain, uh, there is, I think, this concern in New Delhi that, um, you know, uh, there will be more um, uncomfortable conversations over uh, particularly internal issues in India. Uh, and um, the um, uh, Tony Blinken, former Deputy Secretary of State and nominee for Secretary of State in the Biden administration, um, you know, delivered remarks at an event at the Hudson Institute this summer where he uh, very pointedly, I think, made direct reference to the Citizenship Amendment Act in India. Uh, the Biden no. campaign, uh, uh, the Biden campaign website uh, commented on uh, human rights in Kashmir. Uh, so there have been, I think, concerns that, you know, um, there will have to be uncomfortable conversations. And I don't think there's particularly a lot of interest in New Delhi in having those conversations. Right. There is a preference to keep this relationship no. on the on the path of strategic transactionalism in some ways and, and, and uh, you know, continue to advance things. So let me posit sort of my hypothesis on, on what I think will happen here. I think even, even as uh, you will have a democratic administration that will at least nominally and rhetorically place much more of an emphasis on values-based engagement with India and other countries, uh, I think at the end of the day, um, the conventional wisdom might actually be right here and that we will continue to see the U.S.-India relationship continue to do fairly well, um, even if there are bumps in the road, you'll occasionally probably have, you know, a BJP minister here and a Democratic Congress person here, um, you know, say something that 
reveals an uncomfortable truth, perhaps. But um, ultimately, I think at the executive level, things will continue. Um, am, I, am I wrong about that? Do you have a different assessment? Or uh, Okay, so, so, so one of the arguments I've been making, and, and I think the first time I made this argument was in a national interest piece I wrote in April or May uh, 2016, months before Trump was elected president. And I repeated this argument on November 3rd, uh, literally, uh, which is that perhaps the biggest benefit that the Modi government uh, has received from the Trump presidency uh, is not, uh, not you know, all the uh, military agreements, whether that is uh, Comcasa or Becca or, or even perhaps, uh, uh, you know, more enthusiastic American ideation around um, selling, uh, selling advanced weaponry to, to India. But rather, it's, it's, it's different, right? What has happened is a, a United States that is inward-looking or plainly chaotic opened a certain strategic space for India to manage certain perceived problems. So if you look at 2016, to my mind, it was significant for two reasons, right? It was, okay, of course, Trump's uh, election in November. But beyond that was the fact that that is the year when the insurgency in Kashmir really flares up, right? I mean, you have the killing of Burhan Wani that, that, that summer, which, which leads to a massive crackdown and massive flare-up. And so you already saw prominent Indian voices, some of them have since joined, uh, joined the government, saying that, look, you know, nobody cares if this is the structural circumstances of the planet. You had Brexit, you had, you had uh, almost the U.S. elections. You could see some turbulence building up to the election. So under those circumstances, India could do certain things that normally India would not be able to do. And you saw that vividly last year, right? You, you, you mm -hmm. saw that with 370, with the Citizenship Amendment Act. Uh, more dramatically, in February this year, when Donald Trump was in town and literally kilometers away, there was a Hindu-Muslim riot going on. I submit to you that the biggest benefit that, that the Modi government has received is that space to, do, to take decisions it would have normally not been able to take had Hillary Clinton been the president. So just to extend this argument a little bit ahead into the Biden administration, I agree with you, structural logic will dictate uh, a certain stability upward trajectory to the U.S.-India relationship. But what I fear is that the window to take fairly dramatic action has closed for New Delhi right. since, uh, since uh, the GSS announcement that the transition will begin. Yeah, no, I, th I think you make a very important point. I mean, the only thing, you know, I would say that the permissive conditions that not only India, I mean, uh, so many countries, uh, including... Um, you know, the Philippines, um, uh, states of the Middle East, um, even uh, 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 a certain illiberal uh, European states. Uh, there's just been a permissive environment uh, where the United States hasn't been particularly interested in talking to anybody about values, and states have opportunistically seized on that. I mean, in, in, in India, I would, I would also point to, um, you know, the 2019 general election mandate, I think, had something to do with um, the actions that were then taken uh, with, uh, with regard to Kashmir and um, uh, mm, the sure. Citizenship Amendment Act and, and a few issues there. So it's not a monocausal thing, but I, I, I agree that it does factor into it. I mean, uh, you know, um, if we we do see, I think, in 2016, especially that transition from uh, phase one of Modi, you know, when you have op-eds abroad writing about how Modi is going to bring the Gujarat yeah. economic model to India and really uh, supercharge India's economy. And, and, you know, 
actually, I think it was the day of the U.S. election in 2016 when Modi announced his demonetization decision. And that was sort of the beginning right. of the, the flashy, uh, you know, move first, think later kind of approach in India with, with regard to not only demonetization, but so many other issues. So you sort of see the second phase begin where the BJP is just um, much more of a risk-taking party, but not a risk-taker in the way that sort of the the Financial Times op-ed page might like, right? More risk-taking in the way that, you know, uh, uh, I think the the party itself uh, wanted to do these things for so long um, and sort of seized on it. So I think, yeah, I think, um, you know, we will, you know, I might be wrong here. We might actually be in for a much rockier time just in terms of uh, a values-based engagement. I mean, let's also keep in mind that we had several incidents um, during during the Trump years of uh, certain Indian officials having um, a rather bumpy relationship, uh, not only with um, Democratic members of Congress here in the United States, um, but also certain members that may uh, end up serving in a Biden administration. So um, we're still waiting to find out the personalities that will really be at play um, um, in, in South Asia. But I think... Uh, even as we acknowledge the role of structural factors, it's perhaps best not to be complacent uh, about about a uh, a you know smooth sailing ahead. Um, but let's uh, let's move on a little because we have a lot of ground to cover, uh, not a lot of time, unfortunately. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the situation um, over uh, over the border, uh, primarily in Pakistan, but also a little bit about Afghanistan as well, right? I mean, we're we're looking at the Trump administration now uh, leaving the United States um, or leaving Biden with a very different posture in Afghanistan, a significant uh, reduction in troops. Um, uh, so that, I think, is something uh, that will be an important change to the strategic environment uh, in, in South Asia. Um, but also, I think, um, what's your sense of the relationship with Pakistan? I mean, under under Trump, there had been, um, obviously, I think early on, uh, signs that the relationship with Pakistan wouldn't quite take the sort of hits. I mean, I, I remember very vividly Trump's, uh, the readout when Trump was president-elect that came out of uh, the Pakistani PMO uh, with um, with Nawaz Sharif at the helm at the time that was just gushing mm. about, you know, the state of the U.S.-Pakistan relationship. And obviously things took a turn for the worse later with uh, cuts to foreign assistance and greater scrutiny of um, Pakistani uh, state support for terrorism. Uh, so with Biden incoming, um, what's your what's your expectation for uh, the U.S.-Pakistan relationship? Well, see, one of the things that, that, uh, that you saw when Obama came in, Right for the first time was uh, the sense that Pakistan is an actor. Yes, it's a malign actor, perhaps sometimes, but it's a it's a it's a necessary partner or necessary whatever you want to call it. Right, um, and so we need to work with Pakistan. I mean, you you saw Obama, right? Very very early Obama first term, you had this interest that Pakistan is an actor you could you could work with. Obviously, that doesn't pan out, right? And, and one of the reasons are the drone strikes. Is Obama's uh, drone program, but it's not the only reason. I mean, of course, Pakistan is, didn't help matters, uh, as, as you very well know. I think what's going to happen now is going to be driven by two things, right? The first factor is what happens in Pakistan, inside Pakistan. Because I have been, uh, as you, you might know, you know, I write very frequently on Pakistan, perhaps more than I write about India. But so, so, so uh, you know, just following the trajectory of everything that has happened with the opposition movement, uh, Imran Khan's, you know, ri rise and fall and rise and question mark kind of thing that we are seeing. Um, so there is a lot of uncertainty about what happens inside Pakistan itself, right? So one of the things why that is important is that if, for example, the Pakistan military, which is, as you know very well, the, the ultimate arbiter of who actually sits in power, 
in Islamabad. I mean, you can talk about elections, so on and so forth. It really does not matter, right? So if they decide to jettison Khan and then bring in, I would suspect if Khan was to jettison, to bring in somebody like Bilawal Bhutto. Now think about Bilawal Bhutto's relationship with the West, right? I mean, Bilawal Bhutto, as the son of uh, Benazir, uh, would be seen much more favorably, I would suspect, in, in Western capitals. So that might actually provide an opening for the Pakistan military to kind of hit the reset button, reach out to the Biden administration. Of course, this is part one of the story. The, part, the more important, I would submit, part of the story is what happens with Afghanistan. Right? Because as we know, you know, there's not going to be a ceasefire. I mean, the talks are going nowhere, right. literally. And, 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 and uh, if you stick to the commitments that, that the Trump administration has set, what is it? Like there would be 2,000 troops left uh, come January yeah. 20th? Yeah, 2,500, yeah. So, 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 you know, if that is affected, it seems that that is going to be the case. You know, it's going to be very hard, as you know, for, for Biden to send troops back in. I mean, there's simply there's not going to be any domestic support in the United States for that. So, which gives Pakistan a very powerful card, right, about the future of Afghanistan. The card that they have played since, I don't know, the early days of Tora Bora, uh, I mean, in, in October, October 2001, November 2001. That, that's the card they play. That they'll continue to play that card. So I think two things. What happens inside Pakistan? Does the military jettison um, Khan for somebody more palatable, for the lack of a better phrase, like Bilawal Zadari Bhutto? And also what happens with Afghanistan? I think, I think these two things. I, I'm not so much concerned about Biden trying to, you know, get in and mediate something Mr. Trump, for example, right. tried to do quite unsuccessfully on a couple of occasions about uh, mediating between India and Pakistan. I don't think Kashmir is going to be the dynamic that's going to set uh, the tone for, for the uh, U.S.-Pakistan relationship because Kashmir is a no-go for, for India when it comes to the United States. And I don't think, as you said, because of these structural reasons, that's not going to happen. So it's domestic politics in Pakistan plus what happens in Afghanistan. I think that sets the trajectory right. uh, for Pakistan, U.S. under Biden. Well, you know, I mean, um, I mean, not to go back to India too much, um, but I think uh, this past year has been a reminder uh, for many in the United States that, and, you know, frankly, it's a reminder that shouldn't be necessary, that India's primary threat environment is land-based, right? It's in, it's in, it's in Kashmir, yeah. it's in the north, it's along the Himalayan border, not only with Pakistan, but also with China. Um, and I think yes. in, 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 in a way, I think, under Biden, there will be that interest to continue to emphasize to New Delhi that where India really plays the more important role for the United States is in that maritime space. Um, but of course, if you look at Indian defense spending, you know that, you know, the maritime theater, <laughs> even even if India says things sure. about free and open sure. Indo-Pacific, it is still very much a sure. um, um, a land-based uh, military. That's right. um, so by, uh, uh, you know, what I'm getting to here is that I think if, if Biden does want to draw India um, more into the IOR and even, let's say, the Western Pacific, South China Sea, et cetera, et cetera, uh, there will be an interest, I think, to try and reduce Indian insecurity along the border. And that might bear on the way in which um, the Biden team thinks about uh, at least at least the export of, of, of terror from Pakistan. Um, and, and, you know, I think we will be going into Biden's inauguration in the first few months of 2021, at least uh, with the situation in eastern Ladakh, uh, continuing to uh, simmer as it has. Uh, let's not open that can of worms on this podcast. We can come back to that uh, later. But, um, but yeah, no, I think uh, I think I think you um, you set us up nicely uh, in terms of um, the 
the issues that uh, will come to bear in Pakistan and Afghanistan. Um, but let's move a little bit to talk about the uh, Indian Ocean region, right? So this has been, I think, one of the themes um, just in terms of how the United States thinks about Asia over the last four years. Uh, one of the advancements under the Trump administration has been just a much more prominent um, role for the Indian Ocean region, uh, right? We can go back to symbolic gestures like renaming Pacific Command, Indo-Pacific Command. Um, there are still some geographic, I think, um, there's some geographic uh, un uncomfortableness with sure. the way in which the region is conceived of, right? You have uh, Indo-PACOM's area of responsibility, for instance, doesn't actually cover the entire Indian Ocean region. It sort of ends at the longitudinal border yep. that um, where Gujarat meets Sindh, right? So um, the the Western IOR and the Eastern IOR are sort of two separate things in the American imagination. But, you know, broader point being that the Indian Ocean is just seen as a much more uh, important part of the world for the United States in a way that uh, it never really was at during the Cold War, mm -hmm. um, or even in the post-Cold War years, for that instance. Um, so, you know, thinking about this region, um, it seems pretty clear to me that I think the Biden team will maintain this uh, part of the Trump administration's um, geopolitical thinking about Asia. Um, and I guess a big a big component here will be uh, sort of economic competition with China, right? I mean, uh, China has been, mm. uh, you know, going back to, I think, 2015 was when Xi Jinping did his Indian Ocean tour when he stopped by uh, the Maldives and um, Sri Lanka. Um, so how, how do you Pakistan. think uh, yeah how do you think the Biden folks will uh, really think about uh, the IOR in the in the coming years? Well, what, what, what the thing is, I mean, even if you look at the IOR uh, region, right, uh, you do not see a single position that these smaller states take when it comes to the United States, right? And and I think the best way to see it is how differently the Maldives under Ibrahim Saleh and uh, uh, Sri Lanka under Gotabaya Rajapaksa, how they're approaching the United States, how they're approaching India. And I think that's very, very illustrative because literally, you know, the Maldives and Sri Lanka is just, just next to each other for all practical purposes. And, and they're very close, both rather close to India. So you see the difference, right? So when you look at Sri Lanka, you clearly see the way the Sri Lankans snubbed Pompeo during his visit. They're very clear about where the United States stands, which is I think the Sri Lankan foreign minister said something like, yes, the U.S. is a great friend of ours, but, you know, we welcome everybody because we have a, uh, you know, whatever philosophy of non-alignment or whatever they, 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 they termed it as. So you see that. But you see solely, on the other hand, welcoming the United States. I mean, and for Pierre's reception in, these, in Malay and Colombo, I mean, totally the story uh, of how the United States is, is seen. Now, just because there is a Biden administration that is not going to that's not going to change because the guys running colombo the guys running Mali, are going to remain the same till their next election which is going to be like halfway through biden's biden's first term so you see that 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 that, that going on now when it comes to these countries what are their you just kind of unpack what is it that they want right so one of the things that Sri Lanka, for example gotabaya has kept on saying i mean he's a little chastened i think after everything that happened but he keeps on saying that we need economic aid. We need to build our infrastructure. But at the same time, you have the same guy or, or, or his, uh, or, or, or his uh, colleagues, his ministers, have refused to take money from the United States under the MCC. So MCC, they have been, I mean, the Trump administration tried to push MCC like anything. It didn't happen in Sri Lanka. It didn't happen in Nepal. Though I'm told that in Nepal, it's, the story is a little bit more complicated. Mm -hmm. So... To what extent do you make American power palatable? 
in these smaller countries is going to be the challenge for the Biden administration because the obvious tactics have not worked, right? Yes, for security, uh, I think these smaller countries would want both India and China to be present in the region, frankly. This kind of balances each yeah. other out, perhaps also the U.S. But beyond that, I, I think the problems you saw with the Trump administration is going to persist with, with the Biden administration. Yeah, no, I think I think um, no, I think that's a very nuanced answer, and I think it's accurate. Uh, I think the Biden folks will, I think I think they're probably coming in with a better understanding of the fact. I mean, I mean, frankly, the Chinese didn't know this a few years ago, I think, or at least didn't have a good sense for how domestic politics would, I think, play a role. I mean, in in approaching, I mean, not only these smaller countries in South Asia, but I mean, much of this, I think, was the story in Southeast Asia. And uh, Sebastian and I that's talked true. about this on the most recent podcast we did, which is that. Ultimately, I mean, we can talk about, you know, the Maldives and Sri Lanka as these uh, entities, you know, these black boxes with uh, never changing interests. But the fact of the matter is that domestic no. political changes, I mean, the change from Syria Sena to Gotabaya Rajapaksa in Sri Lanka has been a significant source of um, not only uh, internal um, change, but also external change in how Sri Lanka positions itself and more dramatically in the Maldives. I mean, especially with regard to uh, the relationship with India, the historic relationship with India. Uh, it's yep. been much more recalibrated back to uh, the mean, so to speak, with uh, with Soli at the helm. Um, and also, I mean, these states will, I think, look to be wined and dined by India, China, and the United States. I mean, why not, right? I mean, you can <laughs> you can get the most out of uh, everybody as they look to... Uh, there will be a non-alignment. Exactly, non exactly. Um, and, and there's a very practical reason for it, which is that, uh, you know, it'll just bring in generally more investment. I mean... I think I think one of the big differences, though, is that, you know, you won't have that Mike Pompeo approach of, you know, you're either with us or you're against us. I think the Biden team will be a little bit more open to working with certain countries that might have a closer relationship with China, frankly, than the United States. Um, and, and I think that might manifest um, in, in positive ways for the United States, at least in terms of, you know, actually competing with China. Um, but certainly, I think that's, um, you know, that's been an important um, component of, of um, U.S. outreach to the region. I um, mean, also just in terms of the Biden team's uh, interest in de-emphasizing the military more generally uh, and emphasizing diplomatic tools, I think this will be mm -hmm. something uh, to watch uh, in in the coming years. Uh, so we're coming to the uh, end of our time, but I wanted to ask you, I mean, uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, the new, uh, the incoming administration and South Asia, is there anything uh, major you think we left out? No, I, I, I don't think we did. I, I think I would also, I mean, I touched, I briefly touched on Nepal. I think Nepal would be very interesting because, again, because of, uh, of similar reasons, I would say, uh, as in Pakistan, because Nepal is also going through considerable turmoil internally because it, there is no, uh, I mean, one frankly does not know what's going on in Nepal because you have the Oli Dahal competition sort of intensifying. The party is very close, NCP is very close to splitting uh, right now. Your frantic diplomatic activity right now in Kathmandu. So I think Wai Feng Che is, 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 was in Nepal, is supposed to be in Nepal uh, one of these days, uh, right? Or I think he was already there. But anyway, the um, week before, just last week, you had the Indian Foreign Secretary. Before that, you had the uh, Indian um, uh, Army Chief. And right before that, very strangely enough, a very public trip by, by the Chief of the Research and Analysis. Wing, India's principal external intelligence service, Amon Goel, was also there. So Nepal, there was a lot of turmoil, right? Mm -hmm. So how does that turmoil, plus Biden administration, how does that interact? I, I, I think I would, I'd be very interested in, in, in seeing how that, because Nepal is quickly emerging as, I would say, as a frontline state, in, 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 if you wish to describe this as a quote-unquote 
new Cold War, a phrase I do not like at all, but, but it, so sort of this intense strategic competition, if that continues still Biden, uh, into the Biden administration, as we all expect, Nepal becomes very important. So I, th- I think that that right. would be one thing that I would also keep a, keep an eye on, uh, other than India, Pakistan, and the Indian Ocean. Yeah, no, not to yeah, not to write off Nepal at all. I mean, it's been something that I've been particularly interested in um, when I was when I was writing about these issues more. I mean, it's really, I mean, it, it's the story. Um, I guess at this point, it's it's the story of more than a half decade of drift, right? Going back to the September 2015 promulgation of Nepal's constitution and the Indian reaction yep. thereof, and then you know, a few years down the line, sure. fast forward, you have Nepali parliamentarians studying Xi Jinping thought. Um, so um, you know, it's sort <laughs> a straight line uh, between um, between those two events in many ways. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, I think um, Nepal's story is is far from um, closed here. So I think we will continue to um, track that with interest. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, we're looking at um, uh, Bangladesh, which I think is the uh, other prominent South Asian state yeah. we haven't talked about too much. I think there'll be um, continuing focus there, I think, on uh, on the U.S. relationship, particularly on trade and, and manufacturing. I think there'll be a, a big focus right. there. Human, human rights. Human you rights, know, I, yes, I, of I, course, I, the Rohingya, and uh, yeah, you know, I think that'll be a, a much better, um, much more prominent part of the agenda, uh, generally diplomatically in South Asia. So, um, I think we uh, managed the impossible, covered uh, most of the region uh, <laughs> in uh, in in just under thirty minutes. Um, but Abi, I wanted to thank you for uh, taking the time to come back on the show and uh, to talk a little bit about what the Biden administration might meet um, mean for this very uh, important region uh, in the Asia Pacific. So, thanks a lot. Thank you. For listeners, if you've been a subscriber to the podcast, but you haven't yet left us a review, we'd really appreciate if you could do that. It really helps get the word out about the show. And if you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. We'd, uh, we'd love for you to keep up with uh, future coverage on, on this podcast. Finally, before we close, a quick note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.